Welcome to Conversations. I'm Bill Crystal, and I'm very pleased to have as our guest today Jim Caesar, professor of government at the University of Virginia, distinguished scholar, writer for the Weekly Standard and other important journals, and a public figure in your own right, as well as being a great scholar. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> good, to, good to have you. So most people think of you as a popular professor and a well-known uh, scholar and intellectual, but I think of you as the person who drives around Virginia with Fed 49 on your license plate. Is that right? I think that's right. That's, that is correct. Now, what is that about? Well, it stands for Federalist 49, which is the Federalist paper which uh, defends the Constitution and therefore defends law. So for everyone on the road, uh, they have a chance to remind themselves of the Constitution, and especially the tailgaters, because when they come close, they see it straight up, and those are the ones who need the most restraint. And does that work? Um, I haven't been able to do a rigorous scientific <laughs> test yet of its efficacy, but uh, I do my part in, it in whichever way I can. This shows your loyalty to the Federalist Papers and the it, separation of powers in the Constitution. It does. And in, th in that case, I think that paper is especially important because, in a way, when you think about it, that's the paper that invented constitutionalism. Uh, a constitution written on paper in and of itself. It's not necessarily something that people revere, that they look up to. I believe when the founders wrote the Constitution, they had no idea or could have had no idea early on that would have been a, a document that would have been revered. After all, uh, we don't revere the Constitution of New Jersey. Uh, so what had to be created was a way of taking this written document and elevating it into something more than just a piece of paper. And uh, Madison takes that step in Federalist 49, arguing that uh, a fundamental document uh, can be looked at with a, a degree of reverence and veneration. And so the Constitution in our system plays a little bit the role of, uh, say, the monarchy in, in Britain, something that's uh, more than just a, a material thing that uh, raises something higher. And it's been treated that way more or less. There have been periods, of course, when uh, people have taken off against the Constitution. The Southerners did. The uh, progressives did. Um, but uh, I think it's held a pretty high place in American uh, political life. And what struck me when I first I remember reading Federalist 49, maybe as an undergraduate, I guess, is, I mean, that he intended this. That, that's somehow you think, well, I'll go over history, it became venerated. But he says, if, if I'm not mistaken, in Federalist 49, you need, we need the Constitution to be venerated. Maybe he even uses that term, vener veneration or venerated. Right. And that's hard because, of course, it's a popular document, so it's not like something that was given down by a mis mysterious lawgiver centuries ago. Right, it was a, a created uh, idea to, to take uh, a piece of paper, as I said, and take a constitution and make it into what we call constitutionalism. So, um, and it was done with a theory behind it. Of course, one of the reasons was, uh, the immediate reason was a debate that he was having with uh, Jefferson about the status of constitution. Jefferson's view was, well, we'll redo the constitution every generation, which in effect means we won't venerate it. And Jefferson wrote a number of uh, letters saying, we don't want to venerate constitutions. Uh, this is like making the Ark of the Covenant. We want to keep the system open to change and transformation. Law should never have this uh, degree of uh, impact over human beings of subsequent generations. And uh, uh, of course, uh, this all had to do with the status of the past. In what degree do we uh, look up to our ancestors? And then Madison answers, well, uh, very prudentially, uh, veneration is part of it. This is supposed to be reverence, but rational reverence. Uh, so in effect, by uh, rational reverence of the founders, you're revering not just the paper, but the thought behind it, 
or you're revering the political science behind it. So for those who are so inclined, they can re-educate themselves on why the Constitution was written as it was. And um, in, in addition uh, to, to that uh, point as well, I think uh, Ma Madison wanted the Constitution to endure for a, a long time with uh, chances for change. Um, it really goes to an idea of, of how people think. I think the Constitution was a, an effort to structure how the public mind works. Does the public mind work in the vein that we're going to change everything as we see fit today? Or is the public mind work in such a way, well, we can change lots of things, but it's a good idea to think of what uh, was done before, especially by those who uh, were in a position to think uh, deeply about a situation. So it was really, and I think it was seen this way, as the structuring of the public mind. That's why when it came to the progressive periods, the progressives attacked not just the Constitution, but the idea of constitutionalism. Because they said, well, that's fine for the 18th century, but uh, the 20th century is something entirely new. And therefore, uh, if we venerate the past, we've tied ourselves to the past. We're men of the future. We're looking ahead. No reason to look back to anything like that. So it becomes, in a way, a debate over the public mind and the uh, public uh, uh, manner of looking at the law. I want to come back to that because I think you teach political science, and yet, uh, not yet, but the Federalist is so central to what you teach, I guess, in American politics. And I want to come back and have you explain why that's the case, why it's not something simply or mostly of historical interest, a point of departure for your studies. But uh, you get away at the University of Virginia, the university founded by Mr. Jefferson, as they endlessly say down there, with driving around with a license plate that has on it the one Federalist paper that I think explicitly criticizes Jefferson, right? You're a Madison person, not a Jefferson person on this important point, it seems. That's right. That's very tolerant of UVA to let you teach there. Most of them don't get the point, but <laughs> yeah, that helps. Iron. That helps. <laughs> uh, but of course, uh, there are uh, 84 other uh, Federalist papers that people could put on their license plate to continue the dialogue. And I, I know you're a Virginian, Bill. I invite you to try one. Uh, you know, I, I Federalist should. 38 might be good for you. But, uh, I, I should do that. Let's, uh, so let's talk. Oh, you, you are Political scientist, you you're not a you don't teach in the history department. You don't teach primarily political philosophy, though you studied that and it's informed by that. But but I take it you would say that the Federalists and the founding in general for understanding American politics today remains central, um, uh, both as what a guide to the way it works and the guide to the way it should work. Yeah, both, and um, it's also a guide. Uh, an interesting point since you mentioned political science that. Our system is probably the system which was founded or established uh, more than any other with reference to political science. Right. You think of all the other countries in the world, how many invoked or explicitly relied on political science. The Constitution would not have been the way it, uh, it is without political science. So in a strange way, the American experiment is tied to political science, and political science uh, if it understood itself well today, should understand itself as tied to the American experiment. This is the test case for political science. I think you, know, you could look at instances before that where elements of political science were adapted by specific leaders, but this explicit reliance on founding with the assistance of political science, I, I think the American case is the test case. And this this is the new science of politics, that's what, yeah. doesn't the Federalists use that phrase? They yeah. do, they speak of the science of politics and they, and they use it. And, uh, um, so it's an experiment in, in really uh, uh, human history. Uh, to what extent can this science actually uh, uh, help to improve uh, the human condition? I mean, the other sciences like medicine, we, we have them. They didn't always improve the human condition. I think when people were being bled, probably harmed more than hurt. 
Right. And I know some doctrines of political science have had the same effect of harming more than hurt. But this was a, an, uh, a chance to put this experiment uh, uh, before uh, history and see if it could, it could, could actually uh, result in something positive. And so when you teach it, I mean, what, what's distinctive? What are, the, what are the core elements that you think people maybe don't cap capture today, don't see today, and that either in the new science of politics or in the American experiment? Well, one thing is uh, political science is not just a, uh, an academic discipline uh, which is written for other academics and validated by other academics, which is w what sometimes we mean by a profession today. It's self-sustaining. After all, uh, it's a big profession now. It uh, has one of the largest conventions. If you're uh, highly touted at a political science convention, you could consider yourself famous. Uh, the world might not remember you centuries later, but for the moment, it sustains itself. But um, the political science of the, of the founding and the founders is something really quite different. It was meant to play a role inside of the political world. In that sense, it was a practical science. It drew on theory, but it was really meant to aid and assist those who acted in politics. And I think every explanation in political science uh, ought to have that at least in the background. Uh, can what we are studying and thinking about, can it be of assistance to those who act in the political world? And acting means not merely acting as a leader, it could also be thinking, because thinking is a form of acting. Um, so that, I think, is the direction of, let's say, Aristotelian or classical political science uh, as, a, as an, uh, uh, an assistant or an advisor to those who act, understanding that those who act always have to take into account the, the circumstances and uh, use advice as we all use advice. Maybe it's okay uh, in general, but the specifics require me to do something else. And the founders, the founders' advice stands up pretty well, you think, in terms of the fund, you know, their core arguments, whether it's know, extending the sphere in Federalist 10 or separation of powers in Federalist um, 47 to 51, the executive, all these kind of key elements. You've, I, I, you've, I would think it's, it, it, can, it can defend itself. I mean, uh, th there are always questions about uh, whether there were other models that uh, are superior for other places. We've never uh, really been proselytizers for the American Constitution, per se. We've been proselytizers uh, or um, friends of liberal government and democratic government, representative government, but Americans have never demanded that um, uh, before a negotiation with, uh, say, uh, the, the Brits, we won't talk to you unless you first adopt, adopt a presidential system. So we've understood something that, that uh, choices of systems are peculiar. And I, I think you could say that the American system works very well here. It might be questionable its effects in other places. Uh, so it, it, to that extent, uh, I wouldn't say that this was meant to be a model for everywhere. But I, I think it's worked uh, pretty well here. And uh, I also think that the uh, efforts to change it now, as some have advocated, are uh, misbegotten. And in any case, on pure conservative grounds, if something is working pretty well, you don't tear the whole house down and start again. And that's a good point. I really hadn't thought of that. I mean, that the presidential system, it hasn't actually been that popular, really, in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, I'd say, wouldn't you say most liberal democracies remain more or less parliamentary, maybe with a touch of presidentialism? in some of them, but basically the big countries, including the countries uh, that we won World War II against and therefore had a big role in when they set up democracies after 1945, Germany, Japan, didn't, doesn't look like the American system. Looks R more like Britain, basically. Right, they grew out of parliamentary systems and, and given that that was their indigenous roots, there was no need to change it. 
Um, and in some systems, maybe uh, p people have done studies and counted these things, not always with great intelligence. Some of these were uh, American systems were developed in Latin America and then turned into dictatorships. I don't think it was because of the Constitution. I think that they were uh, so prone anyhow to caudillism. Um, I would say uh, maybe there was some transformation uh, in the Fifth French Republic in favor of something uh, moving in the American direction because what they had experienced uh, under parliamentary system was a system in which unlike the Westminster system where you had one party controlling usually, they had coalition governments. And it turned out that the coalition governments uh, um, uh, ran into great difficulty, couldn't sustain themselves. During the Algerian crisis, really, there was no government. Every time a coalition formed, it would break apart. And uh, people in France looked at the American uh, model and they said, well, whatever else happens with politics in an ordinary way, we need some figure who can act for the good of the nation above politics when necessary. So in a way, it was a recourse to what uh, I think the founders had in mind by a presidency, that there's some office who can work for the good of the nation uh, in a time of emergency. And so the Fifth French Republic adopted our system or a presidential aspect of our system, at least for that reason, combined in a strange way with the parliamentary system so that the French can have what they always want, which is cohabitation. Yeah, that's good. Um, I hadn't really thought of it. So the presidential system, I guess, really is, in a way, one of the distinct, maybe the distinctive aspect of the American system. I, I mean, there are forms of free government, but it does seem like a strong president. And I guess it was invented here for some of the same reasons that the French were attracted to it, right? I believe it was uh, maybe a reaction to the experiences of the articles, but right. a, a realization really of the need that if you're going to be a, a strong nation, and I think the United States aspired to be that, uh, that it would require an, an executive. Um, the executive is the one who acts in a way that not everything can be handled by, by law. Uh, of course, the parliamentary system wasn't well understood in parliamentary uh, regimes at the time because of the confusion that they thought they had an executive, many in the form of a monarch, right. and they half did and they half didn't. And as these things uh, occur, some things uh, in politics are formed by growth or accident, and some things are formed by reflection. Our system is pretty much, ref uh, uh, the constitutional system has a, a large degree of reflection and a large degree in which the reflection has remained uh, uh, the basis of how things actually work. Of course, you can find all sorts of institutions in, uh, in the Constitution that don't work as originally intended, the Electoral College being one. But um, the basic structure still remains intact, and the logic of it uh, remains intact today. But you, as you say, there are things that have emerged since the founding, and you wrote an excellent book on one of those things, which is really parties and party government um, in America which, and that's one of the big changes, I suppose, both in the mode of presidential selection and, of course, in the actual operation of the of separated powers as well, when, once you have a Republican Party and a Democratic Party or a Whig Party and a Democratic-Republican Party or whatever it was back then. So say a word, I'm not, I remember that was the first thing of yours I read and I was very struck by it. And, and you remember it to this day? I remember it to this day. I remember you made the argument that it didn't just happen either, that it sort of was intended, the notion of strong setting up parties in the United States at some point. Yeah. Uh, initially, it, it, it grew as a result of circumstance or accident. Um, that is, the, uh, once the Constitution got underway and politics began, people found that they disagreed more profoundly than they thought they would. And so they recurred to parties, not with the idea of establishing a party system, but with the idea of uh, winning, defeating the opposition, 
destroying it and going back to the Constitution as originally uh, intended, uh, as a, a regime without parties. Uh, so the first phase, the Jeffersonian phase, was a, a phase without intention of parties. Still, there was the example that they had been used, which was important. And it's interesting that that phase ended with the abolition of parties. That's what the air of good feeling was about. It was a return, or so some thought, to the original founding plan of, of politics without uh, parties. And um, many militated against the formation of parties, including Andrew Jackson uh, uh, early on uh, when he was elected, James Monroe. They chased parties from, uh, from Washington and thought they were going back to something. So it was in the second phase that when parties were reestablished, in, say in the 1830s, that uh, there was a kind of conscious effort to rebuild them. And of course, that was never put directly into the Constitution. It was done extra constitutionality, but with an understanding that it was a decision made at the level of constitutional structure. And there, uh, for my, my hero in that, that book, or at least the early part of the book, is none other than Martin Van Buren, the statesman, if you will, who was most responsible for helping to reestablish parties with the general view of why we needed it. And I think his argument was in part that it transformed the Constitution a little bit, but was necessary in part to save the Constitution, because what he feared was the advent of demagogic uh, leaders. Um, and uh, this, he thought, would occur in a situation without parties, people running, five or six or seven of them, trying to get a piece of the electorate in order to become elected president, somewhat like a primary today. And goodness knows, in our national primaries, we have uh, more than an ample amount of de demagogy as people appeal to a particular segment. That's what the final elections would have been like without parties. Uh, mm. uh, and then it would have gone to the Electoral College. Then it would have gone to the Electoral College, and they didn't like that. But uh, uh, Van Buren, in particular, thought it would divide the country sectionally. You'd have a southern candidate, a, a, a northern candidate, and tear the country apart. So the, the party, at least the original version of parties, were, were as a conservative idea in the sense of trying to tamp down this demagogy, look for two institutions that were national in character, and uh, uh, allowed politicians to have a say in elevating these people so you could get safe candidates on fairly safe national principles. That was his idea, and it, and it worked for a while. The problem is that parties are a very curious animal. Um, you could think of parties a little bit as institutions, but parties are the point where uh, something new can enter the political arena as well. They're the gateways for, for movements and passions. They're expressive of something. So the problem, I suppose from a Van Vuren point of view and others, is that the, the parties soon became vehicles in the 1850s for expressing the deepest division, which turned out to be a sectional division. And so parties have always had this dual character, sometimes institutions, and there have been many political scientists who've treated them that way, the tampers down of, uh, of, of dangerous division, and parties as vital sources of expression for something new, movements becoming parties and bringing something new, uh, new wine into old bottles. Uh, so uh, I think the understanding of parties is difficult in that respect. It always has to be handled on, uh, on both registers. And I think today one could argue that it does both, right? I mean, it seems to me the Democrats channeled the progressives or anti-war sentiment in the 60s and 70s, the spirit of the 60s, let's say, and they channeled it into an existing party, which to some degree tamed it a little bit, but also they, that sentiment took over the party, you could say, and I think the Tea Party today, right, you know, you could argue both uh, trans changing the Republican Party, but also uh, somewhat tamed by being channeled into the Republican Party and preventing that kind of you know, let's have seven different parties and seven sects, you know, each 
you know, in a more European way, each prosecuting its own narrow agenda, which... Yeah, I think in the working out, this is, it's worked out fairly well. I mean, you've had moments where parties have been taken over by a movement. Even in those situations where they're taken over, they've had to usually accommodate for a majority with the, with the part that they've defeated. Right. Um, so it's always had a little bit of a, of a moderating effect. On the other hand, you, you do want parties to be able to express something new. They're, they're, yeah. It is a democracy and the people speak. So uh, it, it's, it's a complex in, institution. And I'd say the, the moderating role is an important one. I know there's all this criticism when the uh, Southerners, mostly the Southern white population, shifted from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, much to the consternation of many commentators who want to argue that the Republican Party is a racist party. My goodness, if you even take the most cynical view, you, what you see has happened is that you were able to incorporate a huge number of uh, a mass of people into an existing political system rather than outside of it. If you just want to right. take it on the, the crudest level, and I think actually uh, people have looked at this and shown that it's a little bit of an exaggeration how Democrats uh, today uh, want, want to uh, pick the, the, the uh, uh, one solid South for them, the now solid South for Republicans. And as you know, the most solid uh, parts of the country are really Democratic now more than Republican, the East Coast and the West Coast. But I think it's very much part of the health of the American system that these populist movements, left and right, or you know, original movements or reactions against other movements in a way, grow up and they do tend, I think this is partly because of parties, uh, partly because of federalism, I'd be curious to hear you, hear you on that too. Uh, they, can, they can win primaries, they can enter parties, and they don't become 20% of the population disaffected outside of the two big parties really unhappy with the system as a whole. They tend to be able to, well, the Tea Party's a good example. They win some primaries, and suddenly Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are possible contenders for a presidential nomination. If you're a Cruz enthusiast or a Rand Paul enthusiast or a Marco Rubio enthusiast, you feel like you're part of the Republican Party, and you want your guy to maybe dominate the Republican Party. You don't, you're not unhappy with the system. So in that respect, I think it uh, very much maybe in the spirit of Madison, they've, uh, you've channeled a lot of popular sentiments and energies, some of them healthy, some of them you know, maybe less so, depending on anyone's point of view, into the system, not against the system. I, I think that's true. And even if you didn't have primaries, which people raise questions about, you would have third parties briefly. But the history of the third parties right. is that they, too, eventually are looking to form a coalition since there's only one presidency. Uh, so um, even if you had uh, parties which were arranged a little bit in a more closed way, uh, I think the, th the third parties that started would always be looking to, to make deals with one of the major parties, always looking for that, uh, that majority for the presidency. So you think the presidential system has an effect I on that? I think it's, it's a, a really important factor in bringing uh, the parties together. And we we saw that in France as well. Uh, you have more than two parties, but they coalesce into two groups usually. Every so often you have a third, but they're forced to coalesce finally if you, if you need a majority. And do you agree that federalism is, uh, I've come to more of an appreciation, I'd say, of federalism and decentralization over the years in the sense that it just allows, in a way that's not the case in a place like France, I think, you know, citizens in one part of the country to, to win a primary, to win an election, to organize themselves, to get represented at the national level, uh, because they're still, they would still be a minority, perhaps, at a national level, but because there are these local races to win, and both local races like mayor and governor, and local races like congressman and senator for the federal government, they, again, they can get, these sentiments usually get channeled into the broader system. 
not against it. You know? Yeah, they do. I mean, because they're part of the system um, at, at the level at which they have authority. Right. And uh, I think uh, that was one of the original reasons for, for federalism, um, and still is. I'm happy that the people of Colorado have their peyote and cannabis. Um, that doesn't mean that we have to. But the, the, the other reason, I think, goes back to a, a Tocquevillian reason, which has always been one of the reasons I've looked at the importance of localism and federalism. We could put those together, they're a little bit different. Is that uh, uh, where, where people are going to become citizens in some sense. By people here, I don't mean 100% of the population. If it's 5%, it's still a massive number. Uh, citizens have a, a, a chance and opportunity to have some influence at a level closer to home. And this is what uh, makes them want to be citizens. Why participate if, if uh, you just show up, like at a, a high school race for presidency, you show up, there's, there's nothing really to be won. Uh, you really have to have the power. The power has to be there or it's, it's ridiculous to contend for office. And so it's only by ruling, as Tocqueville says, in small things at the local level where people can exercise this notion of uh, citizenship or what's sometimes called republicanism. This is something that's greatly in danger today because of so many things uh, that are being run more and more by federal government, federal influence. Even if you can argue, here's Tocquevillian grounds as well, that the decisions made in the short run are better by the federal government than would be made by local majorities. His answer would be, so what? Far more important is uh, the long-term effects of people uh, governing and playing some role in government. That, I think, is uh, greatly in danger. I was always a little bit skeptical of um, no child left behind. I, I understood that it had its reasons in trying to break up unions, but from a, from a traditional point of view or Tocquevillian, it's a bad idea, and now I think this common core is a worse idea. Um, uh, I know this isn't the prevailing view in Washington, but w when you think about it, there's one thing that people think that they, they, they know something about. It's uh, having some influence over the education of their children. And there's no reason why they can't listen to federal advice, but to, to be commanded from the center and have the uh, decisions removed uh, slowly by the center. This is what we see in one area after other, people alienating their power. That's one of the, I think, still key reasons for federalism. And to make a final point, the country being the way it is now, divided and polarized in, in many ways, um, people will want to live where the uh, institutions are closer to their way of life. And uh, it's probably just as well that people in Utah can govern themselves differently under different standards than, say, people in San Francisco. Both are happy uh, and they don't have to come up with one solution. I mean, Tocqueville feared, though, that the natural tendency would be centralization. That does seem to have been. And do you think there's much chance of reversing that? I mean, could one really, could a party, I suppose it would be the Republicans probably, come to power and really try to decentralize sort of some fundamental aspects of governance? I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea. I just wonder if it's, if it's practical. Um, I think it's fairly practical on some things, more than you'd think. And we've had examples, strangely enough, in the last uh, eight years of showing the importance of state governments. The most important political dynamic, one of the most important in the last uh, eight years, has been what has happened with the public unions and the public union movement and putting uh, a halt to uh, 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 the union movement that's entirely been driven at the state level. I think when mm -hmm. people look back on this period, they'll see that this is one of the, the uh, it's the singular co contribution of the Republican Party in domestic affairs, but it, it's also an important change in the character of our system. Maybe drugs, maybe uh, uh, 
um, same-sex marriage, although that one probably at some point is going to have to go national just by the dynamics. But, but I think it is possible, and it would take a party to stand up and make it a, uh, a position. And that, after all, is what the Constitution is about in large degree. Um, one great difficulty, going back to Federal's 49, is how we understand what the Constitution is. So many take the Constitution to be a dis, uh, decisions made in the Supreme Court. I, uh, I'm amazed at speaking with the students that I teach in American politics. You ask what the Constitution is. Basically, for them, it's the Bill of Rights and decisions made by the Supreme Court. That's the Constitution. Anything else is uh, politics, politics usually in the lower sense. So what's lost is the idea is the, uh, the Constitution is a, uh, a, a document which, uh, uh, in a way, sets up how the country is governed and ruled, and sets up the, the degree of power that should be in Washington and the degree of power that should be in the states. And I know that that part of the Constitution is the most difficult. Madison realized that the idea of trying to list uh, powers was going to be problematic. But that doesn't preclude a party from going to the country and saying, look, there are certain things that we want to do more at the state level. Let's try and do it. That doesn't mean going back and abolishing Social Security or anything like that. Constitutionalism for political actors is different from constitutionalism by courts. Courts have to find a rigid rule. People in politics can say, look, we just think the Constitution means a, a lot more power at the state level. That's the direction in which we're going to move. Don't ask me what uh, Article X, uh, Section V means of the Constitution. That's not what's important. We regard the Constitution as a political document offering us guidance. And I do think that if Republicans presumably were to make that case, it would be important for them to make it not simply as, you know, the outcomes will be better in education policy or health care or whatever, but that it's better for people to have more control over their lives and over the decisions, over the, over the political communities that will decide some of these things. And they need to make more of a self-government argument and a little less of a cost-benefit argument, I think. Right. I think uh, they do. As, uh, um, some people will sim be sympathetic to it. Uh, out in the West, they don't like quite as much government control of their land. Right. Uh, they don't like federal posses. Um, <laughs> and uh, others like to do things in different ways. It is important to keep in mind, you know, uh, when one says a popular argument, that it, uh, we're not talking about 100% of the citizens. But right. I think... Um, uh, a large percentage of citizens who are active, even if it's one or two percent in the United States, is one of the keys to the maintenance of America's system. That you have some people who know how to get together, how to uh, act politically, have the confidence of doing so, have the habits of doing so. That uh, and that's inspired uh, in part by civic associations. It's also inspired by local government. Yeah, and political parties and I parties. Think. Yeah. Parties having a local element, because, right. uh, as you say, these parties, they have a national dimension, but they're also uh, important at the state and local level where people's energies are often focused. I want to come back to your intellectual breakthrough on political parties for a minute. Because um, I do think, I remember when I read the book in, in grad school, it, it was so surprising, and I think it was a real breakthrough. I mean, how, what led you to Martin? Martin Van Buren was not, is not usually on the list of most, 10 most important American presidents. I think he's generally regarded as sort of Andrew Jackson's kind of political guy, right, who then succeeded him for one term, and I guess he had a horrible depression, right, and it got voted out of office. Uh, uh, so how did you come upon this? Well, I, uh, I came upon it from the modern condition. The book started really with the, the reforms of the, uh, in the primary system, presidential primary, nominate selection system in the 60s and 70s. It started as a result of what had happened at the 68 convention. 
and the transformation of the convention system. Up through 68, it was still possible to, to be nominated by a convention, uh, that right. is the convention actually doing the work, rather than primaries. And the effect of the... Uh, and Humphrey in 68, yeah, who was Humphrey, the Democratic nominee, had won, I think, no ne primaries, no, maybe? Never, never entered a primary, yeah. as they recall. And uh, the bosses still had a role, or at least the Daily thought he did. He certainly <laughs> made that point on television <laughs> in uh, no uncertain terms. Um, so we had, a, a, a say, a, a very important change within the nominating system of the, uh, for nominations, the transformation from uh, a half convention, half primary system, which was the case, say, from 1912 to 1968, to an entirely primary or popularly dominated uh, system. So a change in how we select or nominate our presidents, a change in how people run for president. That's the other point, is that this is uh, not only who selects, but how people act to, to uh, try and acquire right. the nomination. So I, I got it in from that point of view, uh, looking at this institution, treating the nomination process not as something internal to parties, but as part of a constitutional issue. Because the original Electoral College was meant to be, if you want to put it, both the nominating and the electing system. Um, and once parties started out, the party part went to the, quote, private or party side, but it was still something that the framers, when they thought of it, they raised the question, how do we select the president in such a way that you select good candidates and don't destroy the country while selecting them? So I tried to return the thinking about the nomination politics to its constitutional status. And that led me to look back at all the periods in American histories where you had decisive transformations in the either final election or uh, mostly in the nominating process. And why that was done, sometimes it was a result of accident, sometimes it was a result of reflection. And those were the moments, and since Van Buren was uh, pivotal in uh, establishing the legitimacy of two parties, coming from a situation in the 1920s where everyone would have said America's a system without parties and we're better for it, to the late 1830s where everyone would ask one of the first features of the American constitutional system, they would have said, well, of course we have two parties. Hmm. Um, so I looked at those moments, and uh, um, th that's how I got back to the wonders of Martin Van Buren. I also learned in the process, or at least it's suggested, that the second most important word in the English language after like, which is okay, seems to have been linked to Martin Van Buren, okay being for old kinderhook, which he came from, old kinderhook clubs. So um, that attracted me very much to him as well. Very useful. You, know, you discovered some book he'd written, or some of these pamphlet, was it? I, I can't remember. In defense of parties, I mean, it was pretty the yeah, he did. He pretty wrote a explicit, book. right? Yeah, he wrote a book. Uh, you know, it it sounds a little bit like uh, parts of it, like Burke's defense of parties. He wrote a book on political parties and and said he wanted to put them, uh, view them in a different light. And he was part of a movement. Uh, other some other uh, journalists and uh, newspaper writers who actually said about the idea of, of defending parties. They, they were deeply worried, as they had a right to be, from the election of 1824 what American politics would look like without parties. 1824 was, for them, the institutional fire bell in the night huh. of uh, segmented parties, demagogic politics. And um, unfortunately, in some ways, we've come back to this and some, some of the ideas of uh, part, uh, candidates who run to segments of the population, who start two or three years before the, uh, the time the president is elected. All these properties which they worried about uh, in 1824 have resurfaced in American parties, although within uh, in the parties rather than the final election process. I'm struck how much you seem to have been informed as you've studied these different aspects of American politics and American history 
by this broader sense of the Constitution. I mean, the, it's not just the document itself or the Article 1 and 2 and 3 and so forth, that there's somehow a constitutional system that is both formal and informal. And that seems to me to have very much shaped your thinking about America. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, it has. I mean, I think that th there's limits to this, but it's instructive to think that part of our politics is still a debate about the Constitution and what it means. Not, not all of it, but we've come away from that because essentially people have said since the 1930s or 40s, look, there really is no uh, restrictions on what the right. federal government can do. That, that seems to be the prevailing constitutional view. So that whole question, which was so central to the debates of parties in the 19th century, after all, they debated the Constitution as well as the policy. Uh, that that idea, some people said, is, is, has been lost as people now shift from Constitution just to policy. So it, maybe it's time to bring back a little bit of constitutionalism right. uh, uh, on these issues and make some arguments for them, especially since we're reaching another point in federal politics. Uh, for all the good that people think government can do, they find that it's too vast to control. Um, outside of any basis for, for anyone being able to supervise it, uh, w one method might be to simplify and move it back to other levels. You're going to have the some of the same problems at the other levels, but gee, they'll be at the other levels rather than in, in federal politics. Federal politics has become m much more contentious in part because it deals with everything right. rather than a, a limited sphere. I'm not sure we're going to reverse this, uh, can reverse it entirely, but I, I think it could be reversed some. And it is striking that the Tea Party, one of the genuine grassroots movements of the last several years, I mean, explicitly is for constitutionalism. I mean, right. It's, well, that it was proves. its contribution, was the Tea Party, was that, which was so astounding that they, they, they brought to the popular level the idea that the Constitution matters. Now, of course, you could criticize some of their constitutional views, right. but uh, uh, when, when they asked that the Constitution be read in the House of Representatives, uh, uh, an event which was met at first with the derision, um, uh, it showed that there was something there. Uh, they have their difficulties, I think, in understanding the Constitution, beginning with the fact that the first thing they wanted is a constitutional amendment <laughs> to <laughs> rein in spending, which means the Constitution wasn't perfect. But uh, the idea that the Constitution should be looked at as more than a legal document, more than the preserve of lawyers and law schools, more than the preserve of the Supreme Court, that's what uh, has been lost, and uh, I think they did a, uh, a good work in bringing that idea back to American politics. I have nothing against courts and lawyers, um, uh, but the idea that th they are the sole ministers of the Constitution and that the debate about whatever obscure point of law is the sub soul and substance of the Constitution, that's only part of the truth of, of uh, the American system. And I think when you'd ask the founders uh, or su subsequently the generations how they thought the Constitution would be enforced, I don't think they would have put the court as the first instrument for doing so. There are other mechanisms for enforcing the Constitution, which we've lost sight of because we no longer understand what constitutionalism is. We think it's getting a court, uh, a court case, taking it to the Supreme Court, and wait to hear what the justices say, if anyone can understand what they write. Right. Ambition counteracting ambition. That's a key part of it, obviously. Ambition counteracting ambition and, and political articulations of understandings of the constitutions right. with popular judgments. So. You know, when people say today that uh, what's the war power, and then they, they expect a decision by the court. The war power is effectively, I think, what was decided uh, in the first Gulf War, that if you're going to have a real war, you better have a vote in Congress. Uh, no one said that that was the absolute constitutional decision, 
the presidents have denied it, but that's pretty much where we are. If you're going to have a real war, meaning sending lots of troops, you right. probably have to have a resolution of Congress. That's where the Constitution is. It's not in some doctrine. And I've had discussions with people who say, well, this has to be resolved by the courts. I said, well, we actually have something. Um, I know people try and worm out of it. Um, for example, the people who voted for the Iraq War resolution and said, well, we weren't voting for a war. That never really quite stuck in the public mind. They knew what they were voting for, and the American people understood what they were voting for. That doesn't cover the other elements, you know, where, where a president may have to act in, uh, using force in other ways, where we understand that uh, you're not going to have um, congressional resolutions. That's, I think the president has that discretion. But big wars, real wars in advance, with lots of troops, probably going to uh, should need the Congress, and that's what the Constitution is. I mean, it seems to me, listening to you talk about American politics in this way, and going back and forth from the founding to current debates, I mean, you really are trying to understand politics in a way that is more in the spirit, I suppose, of the classics or of older observers and practitioners of politics, and to think about the interrelationship of the parts and to take a look at sort of the scope for statesmanship and what the actual effects of policies and doctrines are, as opposed to a sort of legalistic or scientistic view of it. I mean, do you self-consciously think about that some? I mean, sort of about the right way to think about politics and political science? Well, on the negative side, um, long court cases put me to sleep immediately, right. so uh, <laughs> I think I share that with uh, everyone except uh, some of the people at law schools. But uh, on the positive side, uh, that is what politics was uh, about in the view of, say, Aristotle or Tocqueville, and not only going beyond the legalisms, but looking to the important things of what politics produces, which is finally what sorts of human beings uh, are, are uh, encouraged or produced within a society, what the, what the character of the soul of our people is. That's, was, I think, the direction of, of, uh, of classical thought. So always keeping your eye on that, rather than on you know, uh, legalisms, and rather than just on policy. Policy right. sometimes means, you know, well, we're going to get this degree of this, this degree of that, without looking to the outcome on the most important part, which is what sorts of human beings we are. Yeah, and this is good because it make, means political science professors ultimately have more to say and should be taken much more seriously than either law professors or public policy professors of public policy schools, which I agree with this. And I mean, they really do have a, those two have become very imperialist, you might say, in the way they approach politics. The law professors want to make everything into constitutional law or into other aspects of law, and the public policy schools want to make it all into policy choices. But there is something more than those two aspects to, to politics. Yeah, I, be I believe that's true. Although lawyers, you know, they have the most prestige. Uh, their um, hallways are clean. Their bathrooms are cleaned. Uh, not, none of the things that we have in the arts uh, part. So they have the most prestige. But uh, for large, in many ways, they've always been a, a discipline, uh, large parts of which have borrowed from others. So they borrow from law and get law and economics, which has been a really important movement. But they, they didn't originate it, the economists did. And they borrowed from philosophy. They borrowed from other realms. The, uh, I wouldn't say over the history of America that it's been the most original or creative of disciplines. But uh, it's always been the most prestigious and, or one of the most prestigious, and that counts a lot. But it's important that citizens have a broader I, I would say at least... Uh, Some citizens. Uh, yes. For the many who I hope will not become lawyers and uh, have some other calling in life. Uh, um, but uh, that's true. It, it isn't true, however, that uh, political science as a discipline is always true to these uh, um, 
older objectives. Uh, it, it is a discipline now that has, in some parts, its uh, narrowness of its own making. And uh, therefore, I wouldn't offer it as the uh, universal model. Let's just say political science of a certain sort, the sort inspired by uh, three, three of my heroes, Aristotle, Montesquieu, and Tocqueville, and our founders. You've written a fair amount about our current president, President Obama, and I'm just curious from the point of view of a student of American history and of American constitutionalism broadly, anything striking about him? I mean, what's, what's, what will historians note about the Obama presidency? Well, I think they'll begin by noting the uh, extraordinary election of 2008, which is uh, not, uh, partly about Obama but partly about Obamaism which was much more than a political phenomenon. It was a cultural phenomenon and, in a way, a worldwide phenomenon, uh, something like a, uh, almost a religious devotion to an individual who was seen as being able to deliver not only the United States but the whole world from the morass in which it found itself. And it's more telling, I think, uh, uh, about the masses even than Obama because, after all, he was just the vehicle for uh, this, this mass movement that uh, emerged. The yearning for someone who could uh, who could transform uh, the, the world, the belief in that that doesn't speak well for uh, the modern state of the world or democracy. Um, it's a in a way a terrifying um, a, a terrifying event to see so much hope put into uh, one person, uh, with the obvious understanding that no person, even if Obama were more than he is, could ever have achieved that. So uh, I think that 2008 is a quasi-religious phenomenon, uh, pretending something about the character of our world. Maybe it's just a one-off. Maybe the experience of disappointment will sober people up and make them feel a little embarrassed at how they acted in 2008. But that's the event that, uh, that stands out. Even the 2012 election, uh, you look at that the campaign in 2012 was so radically different from 2008. It was effectively run in 2012, but there was no high inspiration, no hope and change. It was tough politics. So we'd already passed this uh, curious stage. And I, I wonder in some ways, uh, not, not to try and make excuses for Obama, whether he wasn't the victim of uh, this uh, movement, which uh, probably must have affected his soul in some ways. When you move from venue to venue, and you're uh, treated with such a degree of adulation. Maybe if you're not a strong personality, you begin to believe it yourself. And uh, I think there are personal reasons, uh, deficiencies in his own character, which uh, um, uh, I think helped that process along. But I think he was affected by this, began to think that these speeches that he gave, which had these responses, could actually change reality. In particular, in, in uh, international affairs, his first speech in Cairo, maybe it was a prudential move, uh, but um, he seemed to think that he could run foreign policy by his own voice, and that the same thing which brought him success in, in the election uh, could bring him success in the running of, uh, of uh, the, the country and the world. Um, we've seen, I think, uh, that that's not the case. A good, solid, and simple education, but uh, non uh, an education nonetheless. I guess the Cairo speech really was almost unprecedented. A president of the United States standing up and talking about his own, where he happened to grow up, and the fact that somehow that was going to change relations between the Muslim world and America. You know, which is kind of a, it's kind of a, those are two big entities that have a lot of reasons for the complicated relations they have. Presumably, <laughs> one person isn't going to just by showing up change. But he really, there is that real sense in that in that speech. 
It is uh, maybe an exaggeration to say that the lesson that he derived, or some of the people derived from the 2008 election, that he was incidentally president of the United States, in fact, president of the world. And, and there was a sense in which he was elected by the world. Uh, at right. least the world felt that they had a say in the American election. Um, uh, the media certainly presented it that way. Uh, his trips uh, to, to Germany during the campaign were, were redolent of that. And I think uh, maybe for that reason, you could say, he, he, if you want to put it in the best light, that he thought he uh, might have this power, so he might as well try to use it. Right. That would be the, the prudent side. Let's put it to a test if this can really work. But I think it went deeper than that, and I, uh, I don't think he's uh, uh, subsequently been able to reconcile to himself. And his followers had difficulty reconciling themselves to the idea that he's merely mortal. What, what helped a good deal uh, in this was the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize immediately, which even his most fervent supporters had to agree was ridiculous. Right. And the realization that that was uh, one of the great absurdities of, of history maybe it was the beginning of some notion that this wouldn't quite work. But it's proved, uh, uh, I think, uh, a disaster in foreign affairs. There are other, uh, other things to be said. Um, one can take this explanation a little too far. So since I wrote about it, I wanted to, to put in a plug for this uh, quasi-religious character in 2008. No, and I suppose one question is, uh, yeah, my father said that uh, a neoconservative is a liberal who's been up by reality, and a young friend of his, Mike Scully, who passed away young, uh, a few years later there were neoliberals running around. This was in the early mid-'80s, and they professed to have been influenced by the, understand the failures of liberalism, of great society liberalism, but we're still liberals, you know. And I think Mike commented that a neoliberal was a liberal who's been mugged by reality and refuses to press charges, <laughs> which I think is a deep insight, really. And I do wonder that about liberals today. I mean, and, and I mean, the president himself, or President Obama, he, it's hard for an individual to really rethink anything, I suppose, once you're president of the United States. And, you know, he's deeply invested in his policies, and I doubt he felt changed in the last two years. But I don't know, what do you, are contemporary liberals, I mean, they, you'd think there'd be a pretty big mugging by reality there, but not much evidence, really, of rethinking, would you say? I, I, not on the surface, and uh, there's always the idea, uh, the investment in the, the person was so extraordinary right. that to climb down from the investment is, uh, is difficult. This is why in, in campaign politics you always get a guy to give a dollar. You'd think, well, I gave a dollar, he's not going to give more. It's the opposite. Once you uh, make an investment, then you feel that you're committed and you have to double down. So I think there's an awful lot of, of that that has go gone on. That they, uh, so much has been, um, so, so much credibility has been uh, uh, put up on this event that it's hard to step down. Um, and I also think uh, there is the racial issue that uh, uh, people saw this as uh, paying for the sins of America. And uh, by paying for the sins of America, uh, electing a, a, a black president, it's one that can't be admitted to have failed as much as maybe uh, reality would uh, properly judge. It's, it's hard, it's hard to, to admit that. Um, it's difficult to admit that. And I suppose if Hillary Clinton runs for president, she can run as the first woman president, and that in a way deflects from making her election a referendum on two terms of President Obama, or does that really work? I mean, does history, political, you're a political scientist, does political science suggest that at the end of the day, these, this will be a referendum on his past two terms, or can it become a forward-looking election in which she kind of liberates herself from whatever burden he might? Well, first, political science has nothing to say on these matters of details, <laughs> no, thank you. but That's good. speculation always does. Uh, 
she, she'll face a delicate problem, like uh, um, always for people following two terms of a president. Uh, I think much more than people, of course, expected in 2008 that her uh, part of her problem will be distancing her, herself, should she be the nominee from him, in a way that doesn't completely repudiate. So that's just a way of saying what they all face. But we're seeing her, I think, moving more towards the distancing than one might have thought at this point. And depending on how things go in the last two years, uh, if, the, if the record uh, continues as it is now or even deteriorating, she's going to have to distance herself a good deal. Of course, the presidency is a personal office so that she doesn't have to take full responsibility for everything. And she was only involved in the uh, foreign policy the first four years right. before many of the most difficult problems emerge. Um, so uh, she, doesn't have to, she doesn't directly have to take responsibility for everything um, that Obama did uh, over his full eight years. Yeah, the good news for conservatives, I guess, is compared to where it looked like they stood and they thought they stood in, let's say, January 2009, two blowout elections in a row, you know, kind of a older candidate who had never caught on against a charismatic young president, uh, huge majorities in both houses of Congress. It just looked terrible. And then, of course, there's a huge comeback in 2010 and um, loss in 2012, but not a, not a blowout. Um, you know, conservatives right now probably are pretty relieved, See, I think maybe wrongly, but are probably a little relieved that the liberal wave hasn't swamped them in the way it looked like it might. It doesn't feel like the mid-30s with an FDR astride, you know, the American system uh, and conservatives just totally I discredited. think that's right. Uh, I, what we've had is dueling mandates since 2008. Uh, we've had uh, two views of the country. 2008, the, the left wins. 2010, it's a repudiation of the left. 2012 is, oh, I suppose, a little bit more for the, uh, for, for, yeah, for the left. Slight left victory, yeah. I'd say, yeah. So, and then 2014 may be another repudiation, and there we are. Every election, we right. have uh, a, a change. That also explains indirectly one of the reasons why we have such contentious and polarized politics is because everyone thinks they can win fundamentally the next time around. And as long as that's the predominant uh, view, uh, uh, you, you have to put the partisan, or many put the partisan view first. It's that important. I think par politics is less partisan when everyone knows they're going to be the loser and might as well get along because we're not going to take this institution. Every election presents this possibility. And the Republicans coming up uh, the next time, Republicans, I think it's more important for them to win than for Democrats, because Republicans can, I think, only uh, uh, gain credibility if they show that they can govern well. If it's just a race between the two programs uh, without any record, the Democrats offer more to the public. The Republicans have to show that they can manage things well, so they need to get elected to show that. And as long as they're on the outside, they're a little bit uh, at a disadvantage. I know there's a lot of effort now to recast what conservatism is, and it's, that's an important uh, factor. It has to be as appealing a program as it can be. But uh, I think it's going to be difficult just on a straight up, all things controlled, for the Republicans to win an election against the Democrats. What they need is a bad record by the Democrats. That will give them the chance to hold office and then show that they can govern responsibly. That's the Republicans' strongest card. And does that suggest a Republican who has governed well? I mean, that would seem to push in that direction, a governor or some, someone well, like that. Well, it, it w would be, or, or at least a record so bad that um, well, the, 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 the Republican could win and then show that uh, right. he or she can govern well. 
um, that's, that's important. I mean, it would be important for either party. But it's really essential for the Republicans who are, as it were, the, the less popular party and have to make a more difficult argument about why their policies over the long run will win versus the party which says, we can give you more uh, now. And uh, gee, if you're up in the air, so I'll take the more now. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to take the long-term view. So credibility in governing is important. Uh, I think it's always nice in some way for a, uh, to have a governor if they're, uh, depending on who they are, but uh, the governor can always push aside ideological uh, arguments by just saying, look, here's what I did. Here's the record. You can talk ideology all you want. You can make all the attacks you want. Here's the record on the ground. That, that, that's an impressive kind of advantage for uh, a governor. Conservatives have been arguing among themselves a lot. I suppose they always have. You've written a lot about conservatism and about different strands or uh, aspects or visions of conservatism. Say a word about the state of American conservatism. What are the major elements of it in your view? And right. This uh, I have written a little bit on this. It goes back to a problem of Locke about the imperfection of language, which is something like this, that um, you get a, a, a word like conservatism, and therefore people think because it's a word, it's one thing, and now let's define what it is. Uh, but uh, many words don't come into being in that fashion. They, they, they come into being by accident. And conservatism, we know if we do the most simple history, is, is that it's a coalition of different ideas, different strands, many of which never considered themselves conservatives, that have come into this, the same party. And uh, at least intellectual conservatives accept that. Uh, they're under no illusion that they're, they're one tradition. It gives the Republican Party more heterogeneous, in a way, than the Democratic Party, more contention. Uh, it's a kind of coalition, coalition born in part by its dislike of the liberal project. And uh, the best leaders have been the ones who can keep that coalition together under severe strains and uh, uh, difficulties. On the other hand, that coalition uh, and those strains can be a source of vibrancy as well. So that now in the uh, Republican Party, you have the uh, polar opposites on foreign policy within the same party, um, and so on. What I tried to do is just identify different strands, traditional conservatives, neoconservatives, religious conservatives, and libertarians, and try and unpack what's their core principle, make it a little bit more of a philosophic discussion. What's their core principle? What do they dislike most about the opposition? Um, as a way of making people think about what conservatism is and what sorts of conservatives they are and how to put together uh, the conservative coalition in an intelligent way, understanding that it's not going to reach perfect consensus. Your general sense is that despite the talk of, you know, that finally the, it's going to break apart, the conservative coalition cannot hold, is your general sense that with adequate competent leadership it does hold, that they have more in common and and what they like and dislike than the differences among them? Definitely uh, will hold um, the, the glue supplied by Barack Obama right. and by Hillary Clinton is uh, 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 an adhesive which is quite strong <laughs> and brings them together. And, um, you know, it's a big country and there's no reason why it, sh uh, it, it, should be, it, sh it shouldn't be the case. I think if we had a parliamentary system, we'd probably have three or four conservative parties. They have different names and probably two liberal parties on the left but three or four. Uh, so, uh, but given the system we have, they, they have to find a way to work together. But it always depends as well on the process by which the nominees are chosen, right. um, which is difficult for the Republican Party because the 
the process of selection puts emphasis sometimes on the divisions. And uh, it's a, a test of the statesmanship of the, of, of the candidates to try and uh, put the various elements together. But there, there are lots of reasons for them to stay together. They dislike the opposition and dislike for, for where they th see it taking the country. The idea of a centralized, more uh, fully entirely uh, government-mandated egalitarian system has uh, all conservatives worried for different reasons. And my sense is, yeah, I, I, I very much agree with that. My sense is the one way in which I think things are maybe are more problematic among Republicans and conservatives than they have been is what I would call the donor class. I mean, the donors, the, the big money people in the party who are probably even more important with all the independent expenditures, super PACs, one can get going now. I think there's more of a gulf between the donors, Republican donors and Republican voters than there's been since I got involved in politics, and certainly more than on the Democratic side. I think if you put a bunch of Democratic donors and Democratic voters in a room, they would have different cultural affinities and maybe somewhat different priorities, but they would basically agree on a huge host of issues. There wouldn't be that much tension in labor and the environmentalists a little bit. Probably. Um, Republican donors and Republican voters are really living in somewhat different worlds, culturally at least, on some of the social issues and even on some of the economic issues. You know, the, the kind of Romney entrepreneurship message is kind of, doesn't mean that much to the... Uh, lower middle class, uh, church going, salaried employee in the exurbs of Ohio or right. you know uh, Orlando, yeah, Florida. I mean the kind of class, the typical Republican voter they need to pick up, hold or pick up. I think one of the difficulties is that this uh, the importance of entrepreneurship and the economy for making the country go is is, is undoubted, but uh, still uh, the average person doesn't consider himself or herself. Uh, on, on the path to Mitt, being a Mitt Romney. Right. It's not the life they want. So what Republicans have to understand is that as important as that is to be respected, it's not the thing that most people even aspire to. We're not going to have 250 million uh, entrepreneurs working the stock market. So they have to be able to show that while this has a, an important place in the party, it's the uh, idea of, of working and, and uh, pr providing for your family, which is uh, the, the core of, of, right. of what this party could be. Uh, Efforts have been made to do this. Uh, it might require a candidate who could speak to this better. Uh, you know, Romney, in his own way, uh, tried. He kept saying the issue is I want people to have jobs. It's hard to defend capitalism when you're uh, that wealthy. And it's especially hard to defend it when you made your money in finance, which is what people don't understand. So I, I agree with you that, that there has to be some way to uh, link to the uh, to, to, let's say, the decent working person. Reagan was very good at this. He, he, right. he said a lot for the entrepreneur, but he put his, a lot of the weight on what the person did to provide, the dignity of providing for your own family. And those can be put together because goodness knows a lot of things would be, look a lot better, even with our low wages today, they'd look a lot better if people were working. And the uh, people dropping out of the workforce, choosing disability, these are enormous tragedies in American life especially uh, for uh, a lot of the males in society who are finding themselves more marginalized. It is a p potential uh, place for growth for the Republican Party if they, uh, they have this group of people who, after seven or eight years, probably should start asking, did this work? Um, uh, but they do have to calibrate their message.
Yeah, no, that struck me the most in the Romney campaign. It, was, it wasn't just that most people aren't going to be entrepreneurs, but also there's a certain lack almost of respect for those people. I mean, it was, maybe that's not fair, but it seemed that way. Watch it. Those people are kind of incidental players in this country, which is really driven by the entrepreneurs. And that may be true as a kind of strict economic analysis. Right. Obviously, the, some key entrepreneurs create more jobs than those of us who just show up and do our job, and we're not, you know, but. But most, most people do, and they do it, and they're proud of it, and they should be, and they contribute to the society and the community and take care of their families. And I think it's been a while since a Republican candidate's really been able to convey a sense right. of I both mean, respect for that and sort of solidarity almost yeah. with that. Rick Santorum tried. He was had right. his limitations. Um, it wasn't the most impressive group, but uh, yeah, that's right. uh, <laughs> when we get down to it. Uh, there's other issues, though, where this uh, comes up also on immigration. Um, right. In some ways, uh, the Republican Party rethinking part of that in the way that the Democrats once did, namely, what about domestic workers and what about their wages? Isn't this influenced by the rate of immigration? Whereas the business class uh, wants the labor. Right. Um, and so uh, Republicans will have to, to find, a, I think, a prudent message on, on that point and not simply succumb to the idea that some limitations on immigration is a perfect uh, um, sign of, uh, of, of racism. It's a good note on which to end. Jim, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. It's really been a pleasure having this conversation with you. And thank you for joining us at Conversations.